On today's episode, writer, podcaster, and opinion columnist Coleman Hughes. I think I really do count myself so lucky that I was born here. Not to say I would have had a good life if I was born in many other places. There are many beautiful places in the world to have been born. But I count myself extremely lucky that I was born in a place that I might want to come to had I been born somewhere else, right? Like, had I been born somewhere else, there's a pretty good chance I would spend half my life trying to get to America, right? Had I been born in Ghana or Nigeria or... India. And why do I know that? Because so many people from those places spend half their life trying to get here. But I was born here and I, I'm not itching to live anywhere else. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's random. I think that has something to do with what opportunities are available here based on what ideas this country was founded on. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. I'm so excited for you to listen to this conversation with Coleman Hughes, who's a writer, podcaster, opinion columnist who specializes in issues related to race, public policy, and applied ethics. His writings have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, National Review, the City Journal, The Spectator. He's appeared on many TV shows and podcasts, including Real Time with Bill Maher, which is the first time I saw him and been following him ever since. Making Sense with Sam Harris and the Jordan B. Peterson podcast. In the summer of 2019, he testified before the U.S. Congress where he gave a great rebuttal and argument against uh, reparations, slavery reparations. He was born and raised in northern New Jersey. He briefly attended Juilliard, then after his mother's uh, untimely death, he dropped out. And he began to pursue a career as an independent jazz and hip-hop artist. He's also discovered a passion for applied ethics and public policy while at Columbia University, where he graduated with a BA in philosophy. He's got a great podcast out there called Conversations with Coleman, which I listen to on a regular basis. Open, honest conversations with some of the sharpest minds where he tackles some of the most difficult issues regarding race and the culture in the West. And I don't think there's anybody out there who can do it better than Coleman. He tackles it with humility, with a calmness, with a certainty, with an intellect and an open-mindedness that... I think is refreshing and, and we need more and I wish more people would do that out there. And so I'm really excited for you to listen to this conversation that we had where we talk about leadership styles, the process of pulling ourselves out of the mud when something bad happens to us, Western culture, what makes the this country unique, what makes it great. And it's just a great conversation and I was so thankful to sit down with him for about an hour. So let's just get on with it with the conversation with Coleman Hughes here on The Dose. We were talking before we turned on the recording about you're asking about my background and what I'm passionate about. And one of the things I am is, is the ability to have these conversations with people that you may not necessarily align with politically. And it seems like this tribalism thing is really bothering me these days where, you know, everybody's so concerned about proving to be right. You know, they, they, they have to be right all the time. And, and for me, it's about clarity and understanding or, or listening or, or listening to the other person to try to seek to understand, I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's, there doesn't seem to be the seeking to understand. What do you think about when you hear me say that? That's really what bothers me these days. Yeah, I guess this gets into people's personalities. 
I, I try to assume no matter who I'm talking to that they know quite a bit of stuff that I don't know, no matter who they are, because that's almost always true. Right. Like you could put one of the smartest people in the world next to a random Joe, Joe Schmo and Joe Schmo will know something that, that, that smarty pants doesn't know simply because they've had different life experiences. And because most of what goes on in the world is never recorded or written down, uh, but it's lived through by people. Um, you know, I constantly learn things living in New York, for instance, about what New York was like 20, 30 years ago, that would be very difficult to learn from books, but quite easy to learn from people who lived through it, for instance. Right. And so if you keep that in mind when talking to anybody, it becomes very difficult to be a blowhard, you know, the, the person that's talking and constantly interrupting and never listening as if your conversation partner has nothing to add. And I find you will learn the most if you commit to listening, right? If you listen actively and actually hear what is being said to you, um, you will just begin to have much better conversations. And that's something some people go their whole lives without figuring out. Yeah, it's it's. Do you think it's a? The best I can guess, it's an insecurity. I think about the times where maybe I've felt like I had to jump in or say something, or I wasn't being heard. Mm -hmm. And I was just sometimes, if I was being honest, I was just saying something to say something, and I and I guess that would be my ego at play or an insecurity at play. I think most. I mean, I think the. the the thing we all share is that we all want to know that we were here and that we matter, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's just a universal thing that we all share. But as a leader, and this from studying leadership, you know, trying to become a better leader, this is where I noticed where some of the best leaders that we've ever come across weren't the out in the front, larger than life, charismatic figures. It's always the one, the person behind the scenes that doesn't take the credit. I mean, that happens hundreds of thousands of times a day, right? And that's what kind of moves the engine of society is that selfless leader who doesn't take the credit, who gives the credit to the team that, you know, the kind of that window mirror theory that when things are successful, they look out at the window, it's because of all of them. And, and when something goes amiss, they look in the mirror for the accountability for the fit and they look at themselves for why, why they failed. There's a lot of that that goes on behind the scenes that doesn't get enough credit. And I do think that's really what moves society as opposed to, we were talking before the recording about, you know, a larger than life figure like Steve Jobs or, you know, or, or Jeff Bezos. I mean, you need those visionaries, but to, to, to grease the skids and the gears, you need those selfless leaders on the inside. Without it, you don't have anything. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I tend to agree. As I was saying before we started recording, I have a friend that believes Steve Jobs' anger, his fury, his his tendency to fly off the handle was a key part of his success. Yeah. And you know, and my my instinct all is has always been that anger 
actually losing yourself in anger is never good for, yeah, for never. a leader. And I would even add the caveat that sometimes showing anger is the proper thing to do as a leader, but you mm -hmm. should be in control of it. Like you, you yeah. should have your hand on the dial when you, th when you've actually thought it through and you think I actually need to show some anger right now. I need to let a little bit of anger bleed through in order to get the best result from this person or in order to really express how wrong what this person did was. So I'm going to raise my voice. I'm going to, I'm going to let enough anger through to communicate my dissatisfaction and then I'm going to pull it back. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. I mean, that might be appropriate sometimes actually as a leader to have that strong kind of sort of masculine energy, but, uh, to, to not be in control of it, like Steve jobs clearly, clearly was that can only harm you because it means you don't get to decide when to show your anger. You don't get to make that conscious decision. You're just a victim of your own moment by moment you know, you're, you're a victim of the weather of your mind, basically, which yeah. you have no control over. So, I mean, that, that's what I would say to that. I agree with you hundred percent. I think as I'm thinking about this, I've, I've been in multiple conversations with people about jobs. And in fact, one time a CEO I worked for, I didn't get along with oil and water with this guy. Mm. And he put an article in front of me from Harvard Business Review and that, and I'm paraphrasing, but I know that the word asshole was in the title of the article. It says you need be more of an asshole or, or the benefits of being an asshole. This was like a Harvard mm -hmm. Business Review article. And it talked about, it was right around when Steve Jobs, uh, shortly after his death and his, uh, was his memoir, biography or memoir that, you know, the popular biography that was out. And it talked about that, about what you just said, that. Well, we wouldn't have all these great things that Apple has produced if it wasn't for Steve Jobs' leadership style. I mean, I suppose there's an element of truth to that, but my argument with that, that it's not sustainable, right? You know, you can't, and to your point, there's, I'm a huge fan of making things uncomfortable when it's time to make things un uncomfortable. There's, there's great value in that. As long as that, that uncomfortableness has an intent behind it. And I think that's what you were saying. It's like, you know, that you're intentionally channeling this quote unquote anger for a desired effect. I mean, it's not about mm -hmm. making the other person feel small. It's not about boost your ego. It's not demeaning in front of somebody. It's about to, you know, light a fire into somebody, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that, yeah, that Steve Jobs, how great could have Apple have been if he could have still had that kind of drive and ambition to push people? Because that's what he was known for, right? It's like people saying, we can't get, we can't get this done. We, this is impossible. No, unacceptable. I want this done by this date. And everybody's going, how are we going to do that? And because of his temper, I guess, people met those deadlines. But at what cost, right? I mean, it's a balancing act. I would say that it's not sustainable, right? And it was proven, you know, he eventually was let go and eventually came back. But I don't know. It's interesting. There was this great video that someone was pushing around LinkedIn last week and it showed a University of Texas baseball coach. I don't know if you saw this. Mm -hmm. And they were playing a clip where this coach was uh, after they lost uh, a game and he was ranting and raving. I mean, F-bombs everywhere and this and that, blah, blah, blah. 
And then he, at the end of it, he says, I've, I've failed you. You know, I've let you down. I failed as a leader, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's a tirade, you could say. But if you watch it, I think it was more intentional, like you were saying about, you know, I said, I think this coach knew exactly what he was doing, right? It was the right moment at the right time to unleash this quote unquote tirade to get that he didn't demean anybody. He didn't signal anybody out. In fact, he turned it all on him, but he just let this rage of emotion. And then they went on to win the next 10 games in the college world series right after that. Right. So Mm. I'm a huge fan of, of making things a little uncomfortable. If there is kind of intent behind it, that's well-meaning, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a time and place for it, you know, no, it, it is an art. It's, it's an art. There's no formula for it. And it always depends on the specific relationship that the leader has to his or her team. Yeah. I remember I had a, a, a band director in high school that turned our entire band program around from zero to 100, from literally at, you know, below average to winning national competitions. Yeah. Um, it was just really a case of, of a change that was entirely the, the, you know, caused by the, a, a leader, a charismatic leader that got the best out of what otherwise would have been a school, an average school like any other in the, in the district. And he had a temper. You know, he yeah. had what became to us a, a, a legendary temper, but he also had a legendary humor. He was as as funny and charming and relatable to us as any teacher in the school. And and so when the temper came on, it was against this context of being a person that we actually felt very easy going around. And that's, in fact, I think part of what the temper did was, as a leader, you know, and and in his case, as a teacher, if he was too buddy-buddy with us all the time, then we we might relax a little too much around him and not actually feel pressure to try our best. Yeah. So he had the best of both worlds where we really felt quite relaxed around him. And therefore it was fun to come to class. We, people wanted to be a part of the band. People wanted to audition for it because it was such a fun environment. It was unlike most classes, which are just, you know, boring and you check the box. But at the same time, if he knew we weren't up to our potential, then the legendary anger would come out and it was scary right it's it lit a fire under people's behinds and so that that balance really worked it really worked it's interesting you're bringing that up i think i had a, a rowing coach in college it was the exact same way legendary mm-hmm. tantrum i don't know tantrum's the right word but just lose it but it was never demeaning. And I'm thinking it's probably the same with your band coach. It wasn't the balance. What he, and, and when he wasn't, he was so fun to be around. He was a great coach. I mean, he got you inspired. And he turned this kind of ragtag club sport when he took over. And it became, you know, a varsity lettered sport with, you know, 
Mm-hmm. First year you're traveling in borrowed church vans to, you know, now chartered buses, you know, and competing at the highest level with a school from Kansas. And a couple of the athletes went even went on to the Olympics, you know, and rode for the mm-hmm. Olympics. He had that ability. And if you disappoint or it wasn't get across, he would he would lose it. And yeah, and I I told him recently and you know, it's kind of those inflection points when you look at like those things that happen in your life that kind of even led to you, like where you're at, like right now, you know, he was one of those. If I had done crew, I wouldn't have gone to the Marine Corps. If I hadn't gone to the Marine Corps, I wouldn't become a pilot. I would have done all these things, right? Mm-hmm. So he was one of those benchmarks of inflection points in my life that my life was became dramatically different because of my experience with him in a positive way. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can fake it. Like when he was doing it, you know, I don't think he, I, I don't, I don't think he wished he would lose his temper. And, right. I, and if you, yeah. if you can't, you know, because when you do lose your temper, it does become about you. And that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't become about the mission anymore. A lot of times, you know, mm-hmm. but it did become the point. I mean, I was like, I didn't want to let, we didn't want to let him down. And it's probably the same thing with your band teachers. Like you didn't want to disappoint him. Right. right. I mean, that's the right. feeling I always had with my coach. I didn't want to disappoint him. And that's a great mm-hmm. thing. You know that you're firing all cylinders as a leader if you've got people that like, I just don't want to disappoint them. Not that you're afraid yeah. of the temper. You're not afraid of the temper. You're afraid of disappointment. Does that make sense? Totally. Because, I mean, in, in my case, and, and I resonate with if I hadn't met this guy, I wouldn't have ended up going to Juilliard and being a professional musician and all that. Right. Um, but it's you're not afraid of the temper because you know, the temper always comes down and, you know, you, you've seen it, you've seen the movie play out enough times that, you know, once he's no longer mad, he's really no longer mad. He holds no grudge. It's like, it didn't happen. Um, so, you know, you're, you're not, you don't really fear a permanent loss of status as a result of him being mad at you. What you fear is in the long run is, is disappointing right is yeah. not practicing hard enough is not carrying your weight on the team um being the reason that we don't make the next level that's really what it is is you want to carry your weight yeah and and that's a very healthy i mean that's a very healthy instant you know cuz the the truth is a lot of kids are naturally a bit lazy well and I they think need humans we are right yeah i think you're right yeah yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a rare person that is highly self-motivated. I mean, I, I happen to be a kid that was obsessed with music. And so sort of with or without the pressures of, of that band probably would have practiced hours a day. But the vast, but I was weird in that respect. The vast majority of kids, it's like they're choosing whether to spend their time on the internet, playing video games, doing a little extra homework and to get them to practice even 30 minutes a day would is huge. It, it's a, it's like a huge rebuke to their own laziness that could only come from an external pressure. It thinking about that, it's a fine line, right? I mean, I agree with you. It's a fine line. It's what's that movie? I'm trying to think of the name with J.K. Uh, Simmons, the drumming movie. 
Whip, whiplash. Whiplash. Right. Yeah, that like, was that, you, that movie was widely reputed to be, or widely alleged to be a loosely based on Juilliard Jazz, where I was going at the time that movie came out. I think. Oh, really? Yeah, it was supposed to be about the program that I was in, or or <laughs> based on the program I was in at the time. And none of us saw the movie. Like, like we all refused to watch it. Oh, really? Because <laughs> it was a yeah. <laughs> So you haven't seen it then? So you haven't seen it? No, I still haven't. I still haven't seen it. It it might be worth a watch based on the. It, it was too what? Too close to home. You know, I I've seen ballerinas say that they never saw Black Swan. Oh, what, Black Swan. <laughs> you know, you get when you know too much about something, you're too close to it. You just like get it bothered makes, by the inaccuracies and sloppy yeah. kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like when I watch, yeah, as pilots, when we watch disaster films or air crash films or recreations on TV, we're like, oh God, you know, it's so far removed from what was really happening. (laughs) Right. I'm sure. So it takes the fun out of the movie or the experience, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But in the context of what we're talking about, I'm I'm just thinking about his character, right? I mean, the teacher who is just way over the line where it's so demeaning and so abusive and bullying. It's not like what we're talking about. But when you talk to the at the end, when J.K. Simmons' character, the teacher, uh, is talking near the end, is like why he does what he does is because he's so passionate about jazz and the result, and that you don't get there through mediocrity, right? The whole world is mediocre. The whole world is average. Mm-hmm. And to create something in terms of like jazz, and he was re- replaying a story of um, God, I forget the jazz character he was referring to real life jazz character you know back in the like how he came great mm-hmm. was you know this guy threw a symbol at him or whatever and it was from that point on you know Charlie Parker, Charlie yeah, Parker. Talking about Char- yeah so he's relaying That's the Charlie right. Parker story yeah m- maybe apocryphal but famous story about I can't remember which drummer it was throwing a cymbal at Charlie Parker um, because he didn't sound good enough. And then famously, Charlie Parker practiced 16 hours a day for a couple of years and then emerged the greatest of his generation. Right. And that's what he was using that story as a justification for why he was the way he was. Because if that person hadn't thrown, if that drummer hadn't thrown that cymbal and almost you know, decapitated Charlie Parker, we wouldn't have Charlie Parker. Is that what that was his excuse for being the way he was? Yeah. You have to imagine though that well they, that may have been a straw that broke the camel's back. If it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. Yeah. This is the thing. People tell them themselves stories about what caused the trajectory of their life. But you have to actually really imagine the counterfactual, right? Like, say that guy didn't decide to throw the symbol. Clearly, at some level, there was a fire deep within Charlie Parker to become yeah. the greatest. Right. And so he would have looked for another sign somewhere else. The next night, someone would have threw a drink in his face, and he, that would have been the thing, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's an interesting. Yeah. You're right. It wasn't like Charlie Parker was. 
didn't know, you know, he had that gnawing in him prior to all of that. You're right. And so I call them splat moments, right? Whatever those splat moments are where the universe kind of, I don't know if you like, if you have a talent, or if you're meant to do something right. Mm-hmm. The universe, to your point, does, does the universe try to give you splat moments to point you in the direct of what you're supposed to be doing? And if we don't end yes. up doing what we're doing, it's because we ignore those. We, we don't do something when the, when the symbols thrown at our head, we, we just ignore it. Right. What? And we, and we don't change. But I, yeah, I, th- I think what's probably true is, th- is that we have to be ready for a splat moment and, and subconsciously looking for it. Yeah. Right. And then, and then if we are, we'll find it. Right. Like we'll find humans will find meaning and patterns in the smallest, most irrelevant things. Um, you know, insofar as you're wanting and looking for a reason to start pursuing some goal, right? Yeah. You will find it. Yeah. So how did you end up coming down this? So when you're in Juilliard, it wasn't your dream to be a writer, podcast, and opinion columnist, was it? Who specializes in race, public policy, and like, how did we go from, I'm assuming the dream was musician. Yes. Well, trying to put myself really back in that lens. Yeah, the dream was musician, but I also cared deeply about writing and philosophy. And the big ideas that move American culture. Yeah. So I I cared about, I cared deeply about everything that led me to have a podcast and to write and all the rest. But I also cared deeply about music. The, I mean, I just do continue to care about both. So, but I guess the, the proximate cause of me leaving Juilliard was my mom passed away. She died of mm-hmm. cancer when I was 18. And I left Juilliard after only having been there a few months. And I was grieving and and quite depressed. Yeah. And reading a lot to get out of my own head. It's like I was reading philosophy just so that the thoughts in my head wouldn't be my own for some portion of the day. And I could replace them with the thoughts in a book uh, because my own head was just a, a really rough place to be at that time. And I had taken philosophy in high school as well, and I thought I had a knack for it. So I, I reapplied to Columbia, where I had also applied out of high school, Re was readmitted to Columbia after I dropped out of Juilliard. And it, it was connected to my dissatisfaction with music school, my feeling that I could teach music to myself if I wanted. I could get better on my own or by seeking out specific mentors. I didn't really need the class. Most of the great musicians throughout history never took a class. Right. Because it's, that's not how you learn. You learn on the job and by practicing. 
Um, whereas I felt like I might actually get something out of a four year liberal arts degree and I could still do music on the side if I was sure. in New York, which is why I applied to Columbia and eventually went there. Interesting. I love how you phrase that about, you know, getting, reading something or studying something to get the voices out of your head or put some other voice in your head. That's interesting mm -hmm. way to look at that. Yeah. And did that help in the grieving process? I'm assuming it did. I mean, the grieving process is the grieving process. At some point you got to deal with, you know, you have to go through all the stages regardless. Hmm. But did, did it accelerate the grieving process to do that? You know what I mean? Did it help you get through it? I guess is what I'm going. I would say it helped me get through it. I wouldn't say it accelerated it though. Yeah. To me, it, yeah. At that time it was just, like I said, the thoughts in my head were so unpleasant. Yeah and dark and i was just remembering how much my my mom suffered in her last years yeah. and you know how ugly the disease she had was and um how i mean what i think what bothered me the most about it was the sense of total unfairness and un injustice um it's like it can make you crazy, it can make you crazy to consider how unfair it is that some people just suffer in their last few years and suffer more and more and more until they die. Yeah. And then other people just don't. And it, and all of the, you can study the causes of cancer all you want, but at the end of the day, there is an element of pure a huge element of pure luck and bad yeah. luck. And that was what was most galling to me about it was the, the undeserved nature of it. Um, yeah, it's totally, it's those life events. You know, me and my wife were talking about that the other day. It's like, it doesn't make sense. Why, why some people it's, you know, you can drive yourself crazy because yeah, to me, that's why I like studying the Stoics, right? That always helped me. You know, if you have a more kind of Stoicism or a Stoic philosophy or mind outlook towards it, it, it is what mm -hmm. it, it just is. It's not good or bad. It just is. Mm. Hard, hard to, to, I mean, that kind of, and I don't say that to simplify someone's pain or what they're going through or the, the tragedy of what happened. You know, it's like, well, how, why did this, little child have to die for example it doesn't make any sense but i can't remember what the parable yeah. or the you know the kind of stoic philosophy of like well the, you know the farmer um is sick and he can't plant his crops and everybody says oh what a tragedy he's going to be suffering this year because he can't plant his crops oh wait he has two healthy you know he has a healthy son this healthy stun's going to step up to the plate and plant the crops. And then the person goes, oh, what a tragedy. This young man was getting ready to go off to university to go start his new life, and now he has to take care of his old man and be a farmer. How bad is that? And then, you know, war happens, and they're coming, and they're conscripting all able-bodied men, 
but they don't take the son because he has to take care of the father, right? So he doesn't get drafted and conscripted to war. Oh, what a blessing, right? And so each of these little one man's tragedies is another person's blessing. So you never know, right? And it's like, it's kind of a way to look at the universe, I guess, is like, well, why did your mom have to die? So it doesn't make any sense. I'm 18. She suffered for two. I don't know. You know, you, 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 to your point, you drive yourself crazy trying to put a bow on it when you, when there can't be a bow put on it, you know, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. like you said, it's just, it is what it is. It's suffering and it sucked and you can't, you can't get a good answer for it. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, it, it it does. But I think if there was any silver lining to it, I think it did. It made me. It made me really question what I wanted out of life and what yeah. the point of my life would be at an age that was much younger than when most people ask that question. I, right. I, I know that a lot of people get into their late twenties, their thirties, their forties, their fifties sometimes, and have, have essentially been going on autopilot the whole time, just trying to, you know, essentially just trying to experience pleasure and avoid pain in in a very sort of automatic way without considering whether their their life should be lived for a deeper purpose than the avoidance of, of pain and, and the experiencing of pleasure. And that's when you can just have a crisis in your life that throws it all into question. And uh, I think having had that crisis much earlier in my life was not entirely a bad thing for me. Of course not. Because the truth is, you know, whenever I began to feel sorry for myself, I would think, wait a minute, this is not, I'm not owed a life free of this kind of misery. Everyone is going to experience this at some point in their life. I just experienced it earlier than most of my friends. Right. That's not actually, that's not actually tragic. That might, that could be framed as a gift. Yeah. Right. Everyone is going to, I'd rather go through this in some sense at 18 than at 50. Yeah. To, to, you're right, because death does that to us, right? It's like, okay, what is this all about? It, it's those, those recentering moments. Every time we deal with the death of a, of a loved one, it's the recentering mm-hmm. of like, well, how how precious and how short this time is. So, how are we going to make the best of it? To your point, you're right, and so that's what I mean about that Stoic philosophy. Is it? I'm not going to say it's good or bad. Yeah, this hurts. I'm not going to deny the hurt and the and the loss and the feel. But to categorically say this is good or bad, I mean, to your point, well, we could argue that Coleman Hughes wouldn't be Coleman Hughes today if it wasn't for that event. But the, right. it, it speaks to the power of choice, and that's what I think is so – I always find fascinating. Is you and I can both experience the same event. Say my mom or dad dies at 18, and it rocks my world, and I turn to a life of drinking and drugs. Mm-hmm. And I never get out of it. We know people that have done that and still do that. Yeah, you could have done that, but for whatever reason, you chose to get introspective and say, "Wait a second, 
you know, none of it, this is all going to happen to everybody. What do I do with this now? Right. And that's the question you ask yourself. What do I do now? Once you pulled yourself out of the mud, you Mm -hmm. figured out, number one, you figured out how to pull yourself out of the mud. Then when you pulled yourself out, you clean the mud off and you're like, okay, what do I do now? And that, that, that fascinates me. What Mm -hmm. makes someone do that as opposed to staying in the mud? Mm. I love, I mean, I, I ponder no. that all the time. Yeah. Interestingly, I went the opposite way when my mom died. I, I was in the months leading up to her death, I was drinking too much and I was smoking weed and, and uh, eating edibles a lot at Juilliard. And then the moment she died, I, I was so worried that I would try to cope with it with drugs that I stopped doing all drugs instantly even drinking and drinking and 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 weed were really the only drugs i was routinely doing so i stopped doing both of them. i even stopped drinking coffee really caffeine has a big, big effect on me i think it's you know genetic coffee is a caffeine has a very big effect on me and i was so afraid of using anything as a crutch to avoid the feelings uh, feelings of grief that i just stopped everything uh, to an to an extreme degree for many 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 months wow that's interesting again what i find interesting it is about is like what make a young 18 year old kid basically young man get scared enough that he, that, you know, instead of trying to numb the grief, you're like, oh, I don't, I, I know that I could become dependent on that. I could go in such a deep hole, having that self-awareness that you could go into a deep hole and become dependent on it. It scared you enough to just stop cold turkey for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what I found is all that stuff doesn't work. Yeah. And I want to do what works. So, you know, like, numbing yourself with substances if it actually worked to increase my holistic happiness then i'd probably do it i'd probably do it now it just actually doesn't work yeah right and and the evidence of it not working is actually available to you almost every day that (laughs) you're doing it yeah with the highs and low the lows that come after the highs, it's so obvious that you're actually not happy. And what is, uh, I think, what fools people into thinking that they're, they're happy is that they never stay sober long enough for their nervous system to really recalibrate. Yeah. Like, how how good you can feel if you're exercising every day, sleeping eight to 10 hours a night, like many nights in a row. Some people actually never know how good they could feel at the end of that many nights. And if, if they did know, they would have a realization saying, oh my God, this is what normal, this is how good normal could be. This is how good my normal could be. So some people just never become stable enough and and check all the right health boxes 
of all the boring stuff, the sleep, the exercise, the drinking enough water to realize how good they could feel. So relatively speaking, the substance, the life of abusing substances doesn't seem so bad. It actually seems maybe like their best option. Right. You're pretty close with your mom, were you? Pretty good relationship close with your mom? I, the way I would put it is I didn't tell her everything. We weren't close in that sense, but she was, um, she was the most important person for me not to disappoint by far in my life. Really? She was, uh, she was the foundation of my assessment of myself. Uh, there, there was no one whose opinion I cared more about by a long shot. Really? It wasn't, it wasn't close. So she was to, to a degree I didn't even realize like the, the foundation for how I judged myself. And in that sense, I was a very deeply a mama's boy from the time I was a, a kid. Um, so for her to die, it wasn't just that I was losing a mother. It was, I was losing the, the deep unacknowledged structure of how I viewed uh, my life and the world. It's like, it's like, I thought I was playing a, uh, it's like, I didn't even know I was playing a game for 18 years. And then the rules of the game disappeared overnight. And I realized I was in a, in a wilderness where I had to create my own rules. Like I, I didn't realize how much my assumptions were shaped by um, wanting to do right by her. Interesting. So it was, um, it was a very, very, uh, it was a huge deal for, for many different reasons um, when she passed away to me. And, and did she know that you valued her opinion that, that much? I mean, did, did you seek her counsel? Is that what, I mean, you, you said you didn't tell her everything, but were you constantly seeking her counsel? She, she knew that was part of her role or, or her value. Yeah, to she you? definitely knew. That was, yeah. She, she knew that was her role. No doubt. It was interesting. You were telling me in the pre-recording that, um, your mother, was it your mother had a, a Marxist ideology and your father had the more kind of Ayn Rand libertarian or did I got that mm -hmm. reversed? I can't, was it your mother? That That's was right. more. The, yeah. What a crazy dynamic to grow up and see. Right. But what a blessing in the sense that now it makes more sense when I look at your writings and the way that you interact and the way that you've kind of debate and present your arguments. Being right. in that environment yeah. had to have shaped the, I mean, that had to be such a huge advantage to shaping your ability to kind of argue or present, present controversial topics. I think so. You know, my, my mother was, she was, she was literally teaching me Marxism when I was five years old. Right. So that's insane. I, I, 
I remember being in the, the office of the house and she would talk to me about what she was reading for her PhD program. And she would talk to me about Karl Marx and, and Emile Durkheim, who was another famous Marxist. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I was so young that I, I couldn't mentally understand how Durkheim was spelled. So I thought it was dirt kind. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but, but anyway, you know, I think one thing, I don't know if it's because of that or not, but it's, it's very tough for me to see someone who disagrees with me as insincere or a bad person, right? I think a lot of people, they think, oh, you know, if say they disagree with Marxism, right? Say they're either more conservative, more libertarian. A lot of people will say, well, oh, the Marxists, they just, they want to destroy America and they're horrible people and they're all, they're all assholes. They're all blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, they, they have, they're wrong. They're incorrect, but their worldview, they have a sincere worldview in, in most cases. Um, they're just as likely to be sincere in what they believe as people who believe what you believe are likely to be sincere. And so you, you have to engage with people on that level. You should start with the assumption of good faith and then try to understand what they're saying. And insofar as you think you know why it's wrong, tell them. And did you see that? I agree to hundred percent. I love what you said. Do you, did you see that with your, your interactions between your mother and your father? Because I could only imagine uh, I obviously find myself in the more Ayn Rand camp. And if my wife was teaching my kids Marxist philosophy at five, I would feel this need to jump in like, wait a second, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> a minimum I would be arguing with my wife. Secondly, I may be pulling you aside and trying to do the exact opposite of what she's trying to do and try to, you know, espouse the philosophies of the free market and, you know. Mm-hmm the magic hand of capitalism, right? So I, I would be saying those things. So what were those interactions like, I guess, is where I'm going. Is, were they, was it coming from, a, did they understand each other? They obviously loved each other at some point and, and they, they coexisted. What was that like? Yeah, they coexisted and they, they argued and, you know, came to middle grounds and probably influenced each other a little little bit towards one another's perspectives um but they didn't seem i mean neither one of them seemed extremely dogmatic with me or right. or commanded me to believe any particular thing um which is good because at the end of the day you can't really control what your no kids think you you can offer you can offer them what you think and what you've learned, but you can't force them to find it compelling. And that's what they did with you, obviously. Yeah. So, what do you what do you find so fascinating about American culture or, or the American experiment? What what fascinates you the most about it? Well, it's. 
a few things, I guess. One thing is it is really the first, the first country to take seriously the idea that citizenship has nothing to do with ethnicity, that we are not, I mean, every country in Europe is named after the ethnic group the country is for. Mm. Finland is for Finns. That's the point. Sweden is for Swedes. That's the point. Both of those are ethnic groups. They're ethnicities. And countries historically have been carved up specifically so that the borders keep in those of one ethnicity, keep out those of the other ethnicity. And the theory is that good fences make good neighbors. And and that's what national self-determination was about after World War One, and there is a logic to that, right? It's like if we're if we're mixing with other ethnicities, it's going to be war, it's going to be conflict. Actually, the way to get peace is just to have fences to keep our people in, to keep their people out, and the tribalism and the chauvinism is built into the system, right? It's accepted and and built into the system. America is different. America has tried to do something none of those countries have ever tried to do from, from not quite from the beginning, but in, in fits and starts throughout our history, which is to say to be an American does not require you to be of any particular ethnicity. America is not an ethnic identity. It's an idea. Yeah. And that is a very challenging thing to do. And there's a reason why no other countries try to do that. But there's clearly a great benefit to, to our having tried to do that, which is so many people from around the world have wanted to come here and have, have believed in, in many cases correctly that there is something on offer here that is that is less on offer anywhere else in the world, which is an opportunity to create a new life and to opportunity to play by the rules and move up the socioeconomic ladder and and participate in, in the, you know, as cliche as it is the American dream. And I think that's, I think that's incredible. I think I really do count myself so lucky that I was born here. Yeah. Not to say I wouldn't have had a good life if I was born in many other places. There are many beautiful places in the world to have been born. But I count myself extremely lucky that I was born in a place that I might want to come to had I been born somewhere else, right? Like had I been born somewhere else, there's a pretty good chance I would spend half my life trying to get to America, right? Had I been born in Ghana or Nigeria or India. And why do I know that? Because so many people from those places spend half their life trying to get here. Yeah. But I was born and I, I'm not, I'm not itching to live anywhere else. And I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's random. I think that has something to do with what opportunities are available here based on what ideas this country um, was founded on. So 
that's basically how I feel about America. Um, I, I feel enormously lucky. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that of all the, and I wish more people understood that. That's how I always saw it. Mm-hmm. And still see it. I try to bring that up, even when thinking about with my kids or younger kids, and they say, "Like, well, well, what about this ugly chapter in American history?" I go, "Yes, it was an ugly part." And I'm a huge advocate of saying, telling all of the history, warts and all. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the whole history of the United States, warts and all, everything. I still look at it and go, but it's because of the original idea that we're able to continue to move forward and grow from those chapters, right? Instead of just kind of blanket saying, well, this is defunct because, you know, 80% of the founding fathers were slave owners. I go, yeah, but you also had some staunch abolitionists on there, like John Adams, for example, right? I mean, you had... I mean, it's because of the idea that a lot of these things that have existed since the dawn of man began to get thoroughly addressed for the first time in, in world history. And that gets lost. That gets lost in the sound bites. And it, it frustrates me because it's not that I don't, I want the history to be told. I want to talk about it openly. You know, let's talk about what happened in Tulsa, you know, in the early mm-hmm. part of the 20th century. And to to bring up Tulsa, for example, and say, well, yeah, this is, you know, you're against this. Well, look at this, what happened. Uh, Yeah, that happened a hundred years ago, and it's a shameful thing, but it's not 1922 anymore, right? I mean, we still got a way to go, but we can't pretend that it's 1922. Does that make sense? And it bothers me when we use those historical events or even race to point out how I don't know. Is that, does it make sense what I'm saying? I just don't buy, I, that's why I don't like, I don't like the the Beverly D'Angelo's of the world and, or even Um, Kendi, you know, Robin D'Angelo. Sorry. Yeah. I just, it just bothers me deeply that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a non-win argument when you talk. If I, if I had Robin D'Angelo on this show, and I've had some people who are staunch defenders of her, and they, okay. I just, I don't know. And how you articulate no, what's what what's makes this country great? There's nothing mm-hmm. political about what you said. There's no, to me, what you said. There's no right or left or Democrat or Republican in what you said. That's like that's the uniqueness of the idea. That a lot of right. that gets lost, and it bothers me that it gets lost. Yeah, sorry, I cut you off. There. Um, it, no, that's okay. Um, like you, I am. I am always happy to discuss the ugliest elements of American history, from slavery to the treatment of Native Americans to the the aftermath of slavery the rise of the jim crow system 
um, the resistance to the civil rights movement, uh, the lynching of black people in the South, the the treatment of Asian immigrants in California and all of the laws, ex- uh, you know, excluding and discriminating against them, the treatment of women, all of that is, is totally fair game. And it is in fact a, a crucial part of history to, to know. But what happens is all of, all of that, by some people, for instance, the 1619 project gets used as an as a way to argue that the founding ideals of the country are illegitimate, right? Um, or that America, in the grand scheme of the world, is really just as good as any other place, right? Like, there's nothing. There's nothing special um, about what we've accomplished here. And I think both of those are, are ridiculous claims. Like, how do you explain why America is perhaps the top, certainly among the top options? If, if you were to ask all the migrants of the world, all of the people who want to leave the places of their birth. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go most? America is at the top or towards the top of that list. And, and that's true. That's as true for migrants, uh, for white migrants, as it is for black migrants and brown migrants and Asian migrants. And why is it, why is it that they, what is it that they see here? Right. Are they crazy? Are they, you know, are, are they masochistic to come to a country where it's impossible to see it if you're black and it's horribly systemically racist? Or is it that they're getting letters from, from their friends saying, oh my God, I have so much more economic opportunity here. It's incredible here, flaws notwithstanding. Compared to where we were born, there is the potential for upward mobility here as a, even as a black person, as an Indian person is incredible. Uh, well, it's clearly the second thing and nothing in American history obscures that. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's more, there is this tendency to be totally ignorant of the global history of all of these atrocities. Yeah. A lot of people do not know that slavery has been practiced in nearly every civilization since the dawn of recorded history, yep. which is roughly 10,000 years. It would, be, it would make more sense to come up with a list of civilizations that didn't have slaves because that would be a much shorter task. If you want to come up with a list of civilizations that have had slaves over the past 10,000 10, years, you're going to be here for a very long time. Right. And the reason we focus so much on American slavery is A, because we're Americans and we focus on our own country more, but B, because America, America was the only slaveholding nation to also, to also be hypocrites, right? Every other slaveholding nation or civilization 
they just had slaves because you have slaves. What's wrong with slavery? That's That was the attitude towards slavery up until about 300 years ago. There are zero, you know, from the past 10,000 years, there are really no recorded written arguments against slavery as such until maybe the 17th, 16th or 17th centuries, right? The, the attitude towards slavery everywhere on earth has been, well, I don't want my tribe to be enslaved. I don't want my people to be enslaved, but it's fine for them to be enslaved. Right. There was no arguments against slavery as such until the, the Enlightenment. Yep. And so America was founded on those Enlightenment principles that all men are created equal, and yet we still had slavery, this holdover from the, the old world. So this is basically what, what makes American slavery different, if anything, is simply that we had principles that we were violating yeah. by allowing slavery, whereas most places, most places didn't even aspire to have principles. So if you're going to if you if you're going to hold that against us what you're basically saying is we we're worse our slavery here was worse because we had principles that it violated. But that doesn't make much sense to me. It's like yeah. Yeah, we were on the vanguard by having those principles and we had a holdover from the old world and eventually we lived up to those principles by getting rid of slavery. Right. Um Well yeah, but I mean, again, that's that that's the argument there that I think that makes it so unique. You know, all Frederick Douglass had to do was hold up the Bill of Rights and say, I'm sorry, explain to me how I don't fit into this. Just tell me, how do I don't, I mean, what an effective way to argue. Like, how mm-hmm. can you tell me? I want you to explain to me why I don't fit in here. Right. That That's pretty effective. Whereas- most places on earth had no principle to hold up right in the first place yeah so how does that make american slavery worse i'm sorry it doesn't it does make it hypocritical but again it it was only hypocritical because we stood up for the principle of individual freedom and individual liberty which almost no place in the world uh, had really yet done to the extent that that we did so yeah well said i can't agree more what do you think how do you i don't know what what is your concern level about where we're going as a culture where we're going as a country i mean there's so many things to worry about from a global scale to economic collapse to the putin thing but 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 internally you know just how we're so divided is really unsettling to me i mean i'm quite a bit older than you and I've never seen it this bad, ever. You know, I'm 53. And this this kind of even split division is very troubling to me. Mm-hmm. But where do yeah, you... Yeah, I mean... How positive are you? I mean, how optimistic are you as a, as a young man? I, I'm a little, yeah, I would say I'm a bit optimistic. I I believe that I don't think there are any cultural challenges right now or problems that are unfixable, um, that we can't make progress on. 
um, if we have the right kinds of conversations. I'm I'm not a I'm not I'm not doom and gloom about American culture yet. I think I think there are problems, but I'm confident that we can make progress on them bit by bit. So that's my attitude. I just think we need like we just had this this octogenarian leadership in fact from a politics standpoint. It's just so old. And I'm in the third quarter of my life approaching the fourth quarter. So I mean, I think I can speak to this. But where is that young, vibrant leadership? I mean, who do you see out there on, on the horizon that you think would be from a political perspective? Great it's a great example of leadership. Who would you like to see kind of become center stage? I can't answer that. <laughs> I really don't know. You don't know? To, to be totally honest. No, I don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, we do. My, one of my favorite factoids I learned recently is that the word senate and the word senile come from the same Latin root. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that that is one problem that we have. But in terms of our general dividedness, never forget that we actually fought a civil war in this country. That's true. I mean, that was, can't get more and divided than that. You can't get more divided than that. It was totally bloody and awful. And um, then occupied the South militarily for a number of years. And, and the period of relative unitedness we look back on occurred after that at some That's point true. after that so nothing no trend is permanent or irreversible and um i don't think the time for pessimism has come yet what 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 is that for you what does that trigger of pessimism i mean what are the signs you're looking for like okay we've crossed a line here um I guess I would have to see sort of violence, more routine violence from the right and the left. That would, to me, be really the signal of, of things going deeply south. And I don't see that yet. Do you, you have know, any, there's a little bit yeah. of uh, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of proud boys, but they're very marginal still. They're not, they're not condemned enough, but um, it's, it's not widespread enough for me to feel that we are on the brink of losing, of becoming so divided that, that we can't come back. My, daughter, my 25-year-old daughter, my oldest daughter, she's 25, she's always talking about like that proud boy white supremacy thing is, is bigger than what it seems to me, I, I've always treated that as, as a marginalized group to your point. It's like, really, I just don't, are they really that? And, and maybe I'm just blind to it or ignorant to it, but I just don't seem like that's the, the country's not even close to being aligned with what a, a proud boy member or a white supremacist thinks. I don't know. It seems like it's just, they seem like a very marginalized group, but maybe I'm, I'm disconnected from it. I don't know. 
No, they are marginal. They are marginal. That doesn't mean we should let our guard down uh, condemning yeah. them, but uh, they are, I don't think we gain anything by exaggerating their strength. Yeah. Agreed. Have you ever thought about running for office someday or is that something in your is that something that you've ever toyed around with or no a lot of people have asked me that but i don't think i'm cut out for what you actually have to do in politics to to do well you know the more i know about how how the sausage really gets made the less i would feel cut out for it yeah i agree with you 100 percent I mean, I guess that's part of the problem too, is that you don't really have leadership in the in the political spectrums. It's just opportunists. There's not what I call real leadership in any of that, any realm mm-hmm. of that, you know. Right. Well, you're doing great stuff, Coleman. What's next for you? I mean, you've got a great podcast out there, Conversations with Coleman. Uh, I love everything that you write. What how, what what's next for you? I mean, what you can continue the podcast writing. What's on the horizon for you? Yeah, I'm continuing the podcast. I'm slowly but surely finishing my book, which will probably come out next year. And uh, working on music. I've released a few music videos, one for a song called Blasphemy and one for a song called Straight A's, which uh, your listeners can check out on YouTube. So yeah, just keep doing the podcast, keep writing my book and keep releasing music. That's what's next for me. I'll definitely have links to all that on these show notes. How else can people learn more about you? Is ColemanHughes.com the best or .org is the best way to to reach you? Yep. Go to ColemanHughes.org or just look up Conversations with Coleman, my podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, guys, I agree that I've been listening to Coleman's podcast. They're just great conversations. I mean, if you like what you heard today, it's kind of the similar flavor, wouldn't you say? I mean, you have some great guests, and you, but you deep dive more and more issues. We were talking more about you in this one, but you broached some very interesting topics that I don't see a lot of people mm-hmm. approaching with such, you, you do it so well, man. And um, I just, I love listening to your show. Thank really you so do. much. Thank well, you. did we cover everything? Is there anything pressing? I could talk to you for another three hours, but I, I know that you're a busy man and I got another podcast coming up in 30 minutes. So I got to get ready for that one too. But man, I love, I would love to have you back and talk at some other point. If you ever want to, you know, talk about any other topic on there, but did we talk about everything that we wanted to talk about today? Is there anything pressing you wanted to get out there before we sign off? No, I think that was uh that covered a lot. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for coming on, Coleman. No my pleasure. My pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we work together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.